That's what I call making a joyful noise. In my dreams, I sing like that. Uh, Luke chapter 14, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you go there? Luke chapter 14. We'll pick up where we left off at last week. I'd like to pray with you first. Maybe uh, you have it electronically or you have a hard copy with you. If you're watching from home, you can download the notes now if you haven't already. Maybe you picked them up when you came in the auditorium this morning. You want to make sure you have a set of those. Even if you didn't get them this morning, pick them up on your way out so you can uh, go back to those. Here's what's going on. This week, Jesus is going to um, tell us that we had better count the cost. He said, if you're going to belong to me, you better sit down and really calculate the cost if you're going to be a follower. Because while salvation is the free gift of God... And it is, right, church? It's the free gift, but there's a cost with it. And it sounds contradictory. Like, how can it be free and yet there's a cost? You're going to understand that this morning. Here's the meaning behind that thought. If I'm a true follower of Christ, I'm a steward of everything that I own, but I own nothing. Everything I have comes from Him, so I'm, I'm merely a steward over it. And I'm not really personally owning it. I don't own the relationships. I don't own my own self-interest, my own goals, my own ambitions. They're, they're God's ambitions. I have to surrender it all to Him, even my stuff. And yet I find that I really struggle with obedience. And I think many of you can identify with that. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me about that specifically because we do war in our spirit against the obedience issue. Let's pray together and ask God to be our teacher. Would you join me in that? Father, I come before you in the name of Jesus asking that you would give us not only eyes to see and ears to hear. I ask that the power of your Holy Spirit would not only brood over this auditorium, but over every single person who's watching virtually. For all of us as a church united together about to look at your word and, and really understand, hopefully, Father, in a way that you meant us to understand, I, God, I ask that this would translate to action, that it wouldn't be one more time where we've just digested your word, but it would actually translate to activity on, on our part. So that requires us to be surrendered, Father, and obedient. And I start with obedience, asking that you would help us to be obedient. We're weak in this area. We want to be more disciplined. So God, we ask for the help in this because it doesn't come from us. We know that. We're weak, and so we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us, to move us along. So that's what we seek, obedience to you. We ask for that in, in Jesus' name. Amen. I struggle with this issue because I'm a rebel at heart. I, I'm, I know it. I'm a rebel at my core, and I, I'm suspecting many of you can identify with that. Uh, guys especially, I find this to be more true of men than I do of women. We just don't like people telling us what to do. Uh, think of mask, right? Okay. You, you know immediately, it's like, I'm not going to wear that thing, but we know we, we're supposed to, and we know that it, it's a, an obligation, and so we have this sense of a warring within us, and it can be the simplest little things, but it can be huge things. Uh, when I was in aviation and flight school, I was the guy who was always bringing in the plane too quickly. I was flying in on approaches too low, and my flight instructors constantly had to talk to me about that. And, don't do aerobatics. 
I just wanted to. And some of it was because they told me not to, and some of it was just because I wanted to do it. And my mom identified that in me as a really young kid. She said this to me commonly, Mark, you think the rules apply to everyone else but not to you. And then my wife affirmed that in me when we began dating. (laughs) So this is true. This is who you are. And I fought against that reality as long as I can remember. And I've talked to enough guys to know this is probably more true of men than women, struggling to do what we're told. Privately, most men I know war against authority and being told what to do. And I especially find it in this passage this morning. Now, here's the truth. I find that I struggle less with the directives that come from Jesus when he gives commands of things I'm supposed to do, at least on the surface. But what's going on internally where the warring really takes place is in here and in here, my head and my heart, because the desire is still there that I want to do what I want to do. There's still that internal resistance. So we'll come back to that in just a minute, more of that in in just a moment. Where we left off in Luke 14 is with Jesus at the dinner with the Pharisees. And he's been at this table where there's a lot of the elite of the elite of Israel gathered around him. And they're enjoying this meal together. And while they're in the midst of this meal, we saw this individual who came in with dropsy and Jesus healed him. And now Jesus leaves that home. And where we're going in these verses, he's he's got a huge crowd following him and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And in the midst of the very large crowd coming behind him, he has to stop them and talk specifically to them about why they're there. Because some are there because they wanna see more miracles. Some are there because they want the free food. Some are there just because they're thinking Jesus is the one who's going to overthrow Rome. Some are just curious. But some are legit. Some are legitimate followers of Jesus Christ. And they're enthusiastically coming behind him. Now, you've got a pretty big group there. We're told tens of thousands according to Scripture. From the perspective of someone looking from 2,000 years back in time, we could read this passage and say, wow, Jesus has a massive following. And from someone looking at a distance in Jerusalem in the first century, they would look at Jesus with all these tens of thousands behind him and say, wow, he has a massive following. But Jesus knows what's going on is they're not really all interested in spiritual things. Some are there because they're spectators. And the church finds this issue today, that not everybody is really there because they're following Jesus, but rather because they're spectating. It can appear like the crowd is enthusiastically following. Jesus has to speak really hard, and he turns to the crowd, and he speaks hard truth, and you talk about the hard sayings of Jesus. Go with me to Luke 14, 25, and you'll see the hard sayings. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's about as hard as it gets. How in the world do I process that? If anyone does not hate 
Uh, if you believe that Jesus is God, if you believe that God the Son became Jesus the man, you understand this is not just anyone speaking. This is God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see that kind of a statement, it should cause us to sit up a little straighter in our chairs, maybe even a little shudder in our shoulders, like, what am I reading? Because here's the temptation. When we come across a difficult passage like this, we can either consider it incomprehensible, like, he didn't really mean that, and we could just blow on past it. Or maybe begin thinking, there's something lost in translation here. Or maybe Dr. Luke wrote it down wrong, because the Jesus of the Bible, he would never talk like that. That's not the Jesus I know. In other words, we can find ourselves dismissing it willfully. One of the most important things Jesus ever said, the clarification of who a Christ follower really is, is broken out in this parable that we're coming into. And yet we can find ourselves dismissing it because we may not comprehend it. So let's bear down on that phrase that he used in verse 26, does not hate. I think we might all agree the word hate is a really strong word in any language. It doesn't matter what part of the country you're from. It's going to cause you to bristle because if you know anything about the Bible whatsoever, you're going to say, wait a minute, isn't that contrary to the Bible? I thought in Ephesians we're told to husbands love your wives and fathers love your children. And in Exodus, Moses wrote, honor your mother and father. How can Jesus be saying things like that? Because to not have normal family love for each other, that, that's the characteristic of the worst of society. Aren't people supposed to be able to identify us by our love? Like we, we buy groceries and give them to people we've never met before? And by the way, if you're wondering where Mr. James went, he was here for the first service, and I told him he didn't have to endure the second one too. <laughs> he got it. He got it. They, they really enjoyed being here, by the way, though. Aren't they supposed to be able to look at us and say, those people, they must belong to God. They love. Well, yes, all of that is true. Yes to all of that. The way the word hate is being used here is not what we typically think of when we use it today. If you look in your notes already, you look on the screen, you're going to see the Greek word meseo. And this is talking about loving less. So immediately, it causes our blood pressure to go down just a little bit. We see this definition that's used here, by extension, to love less. So the thought that's being used here by Jesus is not psychological hate. It's a refusal. A refusal to do what? Well, it's a refusal to allow something else to take a superior position in your life. Something is being loved less meaning our commitment to Christ must be so strong that all other love is like hatred in comparison. That's what Jesus is calling for. So the ancient people, they use this term in a really unique way. In the ancient world, it's a way to differentiate and define preference. We have golden retrievers at our house, a male and two females, and Dakota is the male, and the two female golden retrievers are Bella and Emma. And my wife commonly accuses me of loving Dakota more. She said, you let him out of the kennel more, you take him for longer walks, you give him bigger portions of food. Okay, it's probably true. I do love Dakota more. And he takes preference. And so something takes a back seat. 
When I go kayaking, I'd rather kayak in the Osabo River than in the Missouri River. The Missouri River's muddy. Have you ever been on the Osabo? It's crystal clear. I love fishing in Alaska. I'd rather fish in Alaska than I would in Ohio. I don't hate Ohio, except during football season. Okay, something is going to take a back seat, right? Something is going to get preferential position. This is what Jesus is driving at. Where am I at on the ranking? He's defining preference for us. Now, link this thought, does not hate, with the first part of verse 26 when he says, if anyone's going to come to me, if anyone comes to me, comes to me. This is the defining moment of the initial step of coming to Jesus. It's the initial step that has to be completed by the coming after Jesus. If anybody's going to come to me, they've got to come after me. If anybody's going to come to me, they've got to hate because you cannot come after someone if you haven't made a decision to choose that instead of that. This is how he's using the term maseo, the term hate. So to be really, really clear on this, God is stating in no uncertain terms, he is more interested in quality than he is in quantity. And we can say that confidently because he's got this huge crowd that's following him, tens of thousands of people to whom he's willing to say, stop. Are you following me? And is there evidence of that? Are you following me for the right reason? Because from someone who's watching from the outside looking in, it looks like they're all following, but the reality is many of them are spectators. So when it comes to the matter of saving souls from hell, he wants his house filled. We talked about that last week. He wants the seats at the banquet table to be occupied. That's the very crowd that he's talking about. Those are the very people he desires to be at the eternal banquet table. But when it comes to the issue of actually walking with him, he wants those who are only those who are willing to pay the price. So flesh it out with me this way. If God comes to you and says, I want blank from you, whatever blank is, and a family member says to you, I don't want that. I don't want that for you. God says, you go with God every time. You take God's position every time. It's, it's always God expressing towards us, I take preeminence. Do you obey me or do you obey them? People in international missions work face this all of the time. They face this when family members trying to convince them not to go overseas and do work because it would cost them something. It takes something out of their life. They can do it for a variety of reasons. When God has made it really, really clear, they're supposed to go. See, you can run into this routinely in your life. You can know precisely what God has called you to do. But someone in your life comes to you usually for the sake of their own convenience and their own comfort and demand that you do something completely different. And so Jesus is saying, who do you listen to? Are you listening to me or are you listening to them? Because that's the measure of a disciple. Matthew makes it really clear. Let me put a verse up for you as an example of this. Matthew 10, 37. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's saying, you're going to follow me to the degree that it makes all other loyalties subordinate, especially, and here's the hard part. This is the part I war against. This is the obedience issue. Everything becomes subordinate to him, especially our own desires, our own wants. In the context of the first century, when a Jewish person made a commitment to Jesus, they were immediately alienated from their family, from their culture, from all that they knew. Imagine waking up tomorrow morning and going to open up your shop to sell your goods and finding out the community that you live in and have been a part of would no longer shop where you do business. They won't come and frequent your place of business. They alienate you because you belong to Jesus. First century followers of Jesus faced this all the time. They were alienated from their own culture. They couldn't show up at the synagogues anymore, couldn't worship with the people that they used to worship with. They were considered ostracized. That's why Paul wrote, I count all things as loss. Even the inheritance, most theologians believe, Paul was talking about his own inheritance from his family members. He, he considered it all rubbish. Well, the question logically comes to you and I today, living in 2020, how far does this thing go? Like, how far do you carry this out? Well, verse 27 tells us, it talks about the cross. Look with me at verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, if you've noticed, my disciple is a phrase that keeps being repeated over and over again. You're going to see it three times in eight verses. And there's an intent behind it. Now, disciple can have a really broad meaning. In that time period, they understood it, it had broad application. So let me just show you the word. Next Greek word for it is mathetes. It's a learner. It's a pupil. It's a student. Some of you have been at New Hope a long time. You're familiar with this word. You've seen it before. It doesn't matter if you've been here a long time or if you're new. Just hear me on this. Here's what a disciple really is because many of us start thinking of Peter and James and John and Philip. A disciple is someone who's attached to a teacher. That's the way that Jesus is using it. To learn a trade or to learn a subject, our most modern equivalent of that word, it's going to be like apprentice, someone who studies under someone else in order to start doing what that person does. That's what a mathetes is. So rabbis, they moved all over the countryside in the first century, and they had this little flock behind them of disciples, individuals who were students that were following them so closely because they wanted to be like their rabbi. They actually had a blessing at that period of time that went like this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, meaning you walked so closely to your rabbi that when he kicked up dust on the roads, it would get on your clothing. You were that close to your rabbi. This is the context in which they understand that. Jesus had many followers. He had many who might have been called disciples from a distance, but they were superficial followers. They didn't stick around very long. In John 6, when Jesus really raises the bar, we're told that many individuals walked away. Many were no longer following Him. So He turned to the 12 and said, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Peter's response back to Him was, no, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? Of course we want to be with you. So when you understand what he's talking about when he's talking about a disciple, 
you get that this is all about being a disciple, not being a spectator. This is about being one who really truly belongs. That's the intent behind the personal pronoun that he uses when he says, my disciple. You belong to me, not to something else, but you belong to me. And here's why I clarify this, because here's the temptation for you and I today. When we think of a disciple, we think of a higher class of Christian, right? I think that's somebody who's really sold out. As though there's those ordinary people who at some point in their life put up their hand in church or walked an aisle and said, I I believe, or, or they prayed a prayer. And then there are those who really get serious, and they go to church every week, and they join a small group, and maybe they even give money. And maybe if they're really serious, they might even go on a short-term missions trip. Like, that's the really serious. Those must be the disciples they're talking about. And and they say that with almost like a, a degree of hopefulness in their voice. That's the second group, right? As though the Bible is saying there's two levels of salvation. And we tend to put people in silos. And in one column, you have these people who who believe in Jesus, that He's really real and that He died for their sins. And Easter and Christmas is really important. But the rest of the year, I can go do whatever I want. And then you have this other group who's, who's really, like they're the missionaries and they're the pastors. And, and they're the annoying people who keep putting Bible verses on your Facebook feed. Like we've got two columns here. Let's be sure we understand how Jesus saw disciples and how he clarifies the issue. Look at his definition with me on the screen. John 8, 31. If you continue, if you abide, your translation might say, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That's a heart check. We've got to check ourselves on that every single day. Am I truly abiding in His Word? Am I doing all the things that Jesus asked me to do? Okay, I'm going to link that together with Him making this statement about that person who considers himself a disciple, they better be willing to pick up a cross. What did He mean by a cross? Because we have this modern-day image in our mind of what He's talking about. The cross that He's identifying here is an identification with Jesus to surrender all that we have to God's will. What did Jesus do? He did not consider equality with God to be equal to God, but emptied himself, God the Son becoming Jesus the man, obedient unto the point of death, dead, buried, resurrected. What do we have there? Not just the description of the gospel, we have complete obedience. So this thing that he's talking about when he's talking about carrying his own cross, he's talking about identifying that it could mean in your life shame. It could mean suffering. It does mean to die to yourself, to our plans, a complete willingness to obey him. So the Christian who considers their noisy neighbor next door to be the cross they have to bear in life, they're totally missing what Jesus is describing. We misuse that term all the time. So when we ask, how far does this thing go? Here's the sustained following. Jesus is saying, even to the cross, that's how far, even to the point of death. And we understand he's not talking about a piece of jewelry here. And there's no wiggle room on this whatsoever. Your own desires, your own objectives, your own goals, goals, that's all you own. 
all your possessions, even to the point of death. Because why? Because the pearl, the pearl of great price is worth it. You know, it's been almost a year since we did the parable of the pearl here. But Jesus gave us that illustration and saying the person that's chasing after the pearl, they're going to sell everything they own in order to obtain that one pearl. The pearl is worth it. It's so precious. You're going to sell all that you have if that's what the Lord desires of you. And then he goes into this really short parable. Look with me at verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Enough what? Well, enough money. Now, we've learned in the last couple of weeks that the Middle Eastern culture is an honor-shame society. It was true in the first century. It's true today. Honor-shame is a really big deal in that particular world. You would never do things to bring shame on yourself. So it's crucial that you're always protecting your honor. So Jesus is going to bear into that detail and use a really familiar image. In verse 28, he begins talking about someone building a tower. Now, it's very likely he's talking about a watchtower because in an agricultural society when individuals owned large pieces of land, especially the bigger estates, they would build towers on the corners of the property and put a guard up in the top of it because when enemies came or someone wanted to destroy your crop, they would sneak in and sow tares into the field to contaminate the crops or they would burn the fields. So they had these watchtowers that they built. And occasionally, those watchtowers were converted over to store grain. They became ancient silos. Well, in either case, which one he's talking about in the use doesn't really matter, but what he's talking about, someone taking, undertaking a really large project because it's going to be visible. If you can see from the top of it, that means everybody on the ground can see it. And everyone in the community will know it. So your mission is on display. Your objective is on display in Jesus' parable. So he finishes it by saying, verse 29, otherwise when he has laid a foundation and he is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Here's Jesus' point. When you're going to go do something as challenging as building a tower, no one wants to end up with a half-finished project because they failed to calculate. The community will mock and laugh them, and they will lose their, shame, their honor, and they will have shame come upon them. So he's got this huge crowd following him. And he says, a half-finished building becomes a permanent monument to your failure. You want to be sure you can finish what you began. So Jesus is saying to this crowd, don't be coming after me just because you need a superficial emotional boost, just because you're looking to be temporarily strengthened. What you're signing on for is the real deal. And then he goes into the next very short parable, verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 Keep going, verse 32, or else while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What king in his right mind is going to put 10,000 of his soldiers in harm's way? 
Like, it's danger close. There's 20,000 soldiers coming at you, and you've only got 10,000? You're going to assess immediately whether or not there's a better strategy. And if you come to the conclusion that you can't win, anybody in their right mind is going to send out a delegation and try and negotiate peace. So Jesus has just used these two very simple parables to illustrate this image of things that individuals living in the first century would consider monumental. And he's contrasting it to following him by saying, you think that's a big deal? Committing to me is colossal. Those are big to build a tower. Those are big to face an army of 20,000. And they better calculate because what you're about to step into needs to be calculated carefully. And then he lands the hardest verse in the midst of this section, and he ends with it. Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Wow. What does that mean? There must be some fancy Greek word to explain that. I hope Mark's got something in his back pocket. What? He can't possibly mean that. That's all I have left. We've already been stripped of our relationships with our family and our friends in terms of priority, and now we've been stripped of our own self-interest in terms of priority, and now we're dealing with everything that we own? Does he really mean that? We know that Scripture does not contradict Scripture. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. And in the book of Proverbs, Solomon wrote, in the storehouse of the wise are choice oils and fine wines and great meat. In other words, if you're smart, you're putting stuff away, you're storing it for the future. But you come to the New Testament and you find Jesus saying something like this. How does the same Bible tell us to give up our possessions? Or what about Lydia in the New Testament who had a big enough house, she could host the whole church in her house. If she had sold her house and gave it away, she'd never be able to bring the church inside. How do I rectify this in my mind? And I know I can't buy my salvation by giving up my stuff, as though there's like some exchange system. So how do I understand this command coming from God the Son himself? Hear me on this. Jesus is not telling you to sell your house, sell your car, empty out your bank account, and give it all away, and then go out and beg to survive. And I know right now some of you are going, glad to hear that. That's really, that's helpful. It's not what he's telling you to do. So in what sense do you give up all your possessions? This is your last Greek word for this morning. It's apotasso. It means to say goodbye. You follow the definition out, you see it in your notes, you see it on the screen. Apatasso means I'm saying goodbye because those things are second rate in my life. I can't put them in the superior position. They have to go into the inferior position. All my stuff has to take a back seat to God. That's the word apotasso. That's exactly what it means. So here's how I understand verse 33. Here's the way that I interpret it. 
you and I, we are only stewards. We're stewards at all that God has blessed us with, all that He's entrusted us with, but we are not truly owners. And that makes surrender a whole lot easier. Corey Tenboom is famous for a statement. Corey is someone who was in, um, I think it was Auschwitz, but she was in one of the concentration camps back in World War II under the Nazi regime. And she came to Christ as a person who was incarcerated in one of those prison camps, and she'd lost family members. And in the 1960s, when she wrote her book, The Hiding Place, she clarified that she had learned over the course of her life to come to God with open hands. She said, because when I come before Him with clenched fist, it hurts when He pries open my fingers. We understand that. That's what Jesus is talking about. Come before Him with these open hands, and that's a whole lot easier because it really hurts when He pries open our fingers. And when you take that attitude, what you're saying to God is, I don't have any relationships in my life that are not surrendered to you. I don't have any self-interest that are not surrendered to you. It doesn't mean that I stop pursuing my education. It doesn't mean that I stop being the very best I can possibly be in whatever field of interest I'm in. It doesn't mean that. It means I'm coming before God with a surrendered heart. I want to be the best that I can be. And it doesn't mean you have to unload everything you own and sell it all and move to Nairobi, Kenya, or move to Lima, Peru, or move to the Manila, Philippines. But it could. And you see the difference? It could mean that. It could mean that God's claim on your life is exactly that. It means all the stuff in my life is subordinate. It's surrendered to what God wants. So my attitude has to be like this, and this is part of the warring within me, part of the things that we have to pray about as believers in Christ. I want to use whatever He's given me. I want to use my house. I want to use my, house, my car. I want to use my bank account for the glory of His kingdom because all of it is subject to His plans. So He's saying, if I asked you to do that, would you sell everything that you have and give it away to the poor? Because that's exactly what he asked the rich young ruler to do. You notice he never asked Peter to do that. He never asked James. Their issues were in another area. But he asked the rich young ruler, when the rich young ruler came to him and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, go out, one thing you lack, because go out and sell everything that you own, give it to the poor, and then come follow after me. And we're told, according to Scripture, that young man went away very sorrowful because he had many possessions. You see, Jesus pushed right on his heart. It's where he did the surgery because he knew exactly what that young man needed to give up. It isn't that by definition, you're going to have to do that. But maybe, I don't know God's details for your life. And the way it looks in my life is going to look different than what it looks like in you or yours. God hasn't stripped most of us of everything materially. But I can point you to people whom it has happened to, who had to give up everything. Christ's discipline demands 
abandonment of everything. Everything changes. It's a completely whole new way of life. So I want to be very, very clear about this, lest there's any confusion on this issue. Salvation is to everyone who comes to Him by faith. Say amen if you agree with that. It is. It's the free gift of God. There's no strings attached, and there is no way to earn it, and there's certainly no way to deserve it. So if you're new to church, you need to hear this. Salvation in Jesus Christ means coming to the place where you believe in Jesus and you trust Him for the complete forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul. We're talking about the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection. But in this parable, you're looking at the reality that it's going to cost you. It's going to cost relationships. It's going to cost self-interest, maybe even your stuff. Jesus wants everyone to be saved, that my house might be filled. I'm not willing that any would perish, but he cautions. Not all are going to be seated at the great banquet table who think that they're going to be seated there. And while you can't earn your seat at the table, Jesus makes it clear there's a price to pay. And he says there's barriers. And he never, if you're in, in the business of talking to people about Jesus, know this about Jesus. He never allows people to have false understanding about what it means to be saved. He's very, very clear about how exclusive it is. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 7, 13. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So he doesn't desire superficial followers. So there's no false sense of salvation. And I want to be real clear about that because I guarantee you, just like there is in my life, there's people in your life who can recite to you the facts. They can tell you about God the Son becoming Jesus the man and Jesus living a perfect, sinless life. And they can tell you about Jesus dying on the cross and about the burial and the resurrection and the ascension. They can get the truth right of the facts and stop right there because of the required attitude. It's the attitude that God's after. I've known individuals who can tell me all the facts and would say, when it comes to that choice of lordship, making him lord over me, or me wanting my own way, I, I want my own way. It's an obedience issue. So what you're finding in this parable is he's saying he's got to be lord of your life. That's the price of coming after him. We're landing this plane now, and you need to know this about your Bible. Other than the Gospels, and by that I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even to a great degree the Gospels, the bulk of the New Testament focuses in on this very issue. It is at the center of everything. What is your attitude? What are you willing to surrender? What are you clinging on to yourself? Because the gospel says everything in your life changes when you decide to follow Jesus. In the Bible, there is no Christianity light, even though Americans think there are. The biblical Christianity is very different from what Americans interpret Christianity to be. Jesus is saying, when you come to me, I am not a decoration for Sunday morning. I'm not just something you put on for 11 o'clock. 
the, the price for following Jesus in those days in the first century, it would cost you your life. Not that it doesn't in parts of our planet today, North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, China. There's places where you will find yourself in prison if you proclaim the things that we're talking about this morning. Until now, following Jesus in the United States of America has not cost individuals to the same degree it's cost others throughout history. But that could change on a dime in our country. It absolutely could shift. Short of a massive revival, I don't know what God's going to do to stop the flow. Standing up for Jesus comes at a great cost, and the lines are becoming clearer and clearer every week. So we look at this passage and say, wow, he's asking for a lot. Yeah. The way of the cross asks this, are you willing to give your life? Are you willing not only to give up your desires and your ambitions and all your stuff, are you willing to say with the writers of the New Testament what you see on the screen right now, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I promise you in the last 25 minutes of you being here this morning, you've learned more about this passage than 99% of humanity. You know a lot about what it's saying, and the reason I emphasize that is most people, when they read that, they are really confused. What does he mean, hate my mother? You've got a clear understanding now what he's talking about here. And most are very confused about this passage, and they've left a huge trail of confusion in their wake. There's a thought that's going on in the minds of many people. There's this idea of praying a prayer and being given salvation with absolutely no commitment whatsoever, even without repentance. It's ludicrous. It's totally in contradiction with what Jesus is saying. The idea that somehow there's a possibility of being saved without ever being a follower of Jesus? How can you balance that in your mind when Jesus says that's exactly what he's looking for? So becoming a disciple is not adding a new credential to your life. It is your life. New life in Jesus is the end of the old you, but it's the beginning of the new you. I'll sign up for that. So now you know why I had to start with praying for obedience, because we all war against this. And that's where I'm going to end this morning. Let's pray together that we could be obedient to the Father on these issues, that we could find ourselves in that place where we're willing to surrender, we're willing to say, I get it, okay? Today, I'm, I'm going to lay it at the altar, and tomorrow, we'll deal with tomorrow as it comes. Let's pray. Father, I'd be the first to say that I do not always yield up to you everything perfectly. And I can say that in the plural, Father, we, we do not yield up everything to you perfectly. It's just part of who we are. It's that old man that keeps leaking out of us. But we want to find ourselves in that place. We still feel the natural draw. We do, God. We admit to that. We know there's relationships that want to pull us away from you.
We know there's stuff and it calls to us. Put us in that place, Father, where we really understand what it means to give it second position, where we hate it in the way that you meant it. And we know it's a struggle. But in coming to you right now, what we're admitting is we need the power of you. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. Do surgery on us. Be at work in us. That's our heart's cry, Father. I pray that you'd send us out now with your blessing for having studied your word and your blessing that we would be able to apply your word. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name because he's worthy of it. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.